0: perhaps the saddest story in all of the Gospels. It is the story of the rich young ruler. And it's the only story that we find in the Gospels where somebody comes with a sincere need to Christ and they walk away disappointed. How does that happen? How does somebody look Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all things, in the face and walk away disappointed? So we spent a great deal of time last week really unpacking that and how that happened for this man. And, and because we're still entering into the same story, a second of, a section of Scripture, let me just kind of review that for you just a little bit. First of all, this man made a series of fatal errors. The first mistake that he made was believing that in order to inherit, uh, you could inherit, inherit the internal life by being good and by doing good. This was demonstrated in his response, this rich young ruler's response to Jesus or question to Jesus when he asked Jesus, What must we do to inherit eternal life? He believed you could do something to be saved. The second mistake that he made was the belief that man could be good. He approached Jesus and he referred to Jesus as a good teacher. He said, Good teacher. And we know last week we talked about how Jews didn't believe that man could be good, but only God could be good, so they reserved the word good for God and God alone. So when this man calls Jesus good, he wasn't referencing and he wasn't showing faith that he believed that he was God. Instead, he was demonstrating a fault, and that is he believed that man could be good. The third fatal error that he made was this, is he believed he was good, And this is where most people get it wrong in America and around the world. We think we are good and deserving of heaven. He thought the same thing. And we know that because he said all of these things, meaning all of your laws, God, I have done. I have been faithful since my youth. But he was sorely mistaken. The second major mistake he he made was not only did he make a series of fatal errors, but the second reason he walked away from God disappointed, Christ disappointed, is because he rejected Jesus' call. Jesus called the man to faith in himself. He, he began, first of all, with a loving call. His, the call was loving. He said, one thing you lack. In other words, you've done all these things. I'm not even going to debate that with you. You've done all these things, but there's one thing you are lacking. And that was something that would have been tremendously tough for this young man to swallow and to accept. Because all his life, he tried to be, do what was pleasing to God. And Jesus, out of his love, lets him know that he's missing something. He's, you're missing something. And it, what he was missing, of course, was Christ. The second thing that we know about that calling is not only was it loving, but it was also radical. Jesus sat there and he said to him, he says, if you want to know that you have eternal life, you must sell all you have and follow me. Now, it's important that we understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't saying there's just one more thing you have to do, and by doing enough, you can somehow inherit eternal life. He wasn't saying that. What he was saying is, you will know that you will have eternal life if you give up what you love most in this world. And, and, and take that off of the throne of your heart and put me there. Let me replace the things that you love most. And if you do that, if you will give up everything that you have and follow me, I will know, you will know for sure that you have eternal life and that you have been born again. Not for salvation, but a demonstration that salvation had actually come into him. And he had taken part in it. And third, it was, this was a call. It was a rewarding call. It was a rewarding because Jesus says, if you will do this, if you will, if you will sell all you have and give it to the poor, here's what he says. He says, you will inherit eternal life. In other words, he goes, you get me. You get me, you get heaven, you get eternal life, you get all the glory that goes with heaven and eternal life. And so here's the thing, God offers it all to him, he calls him, but yet the man walks away. He looks at Jesus and he looks at his stuff and he chooses his stuff over Jesus Christ. He sees more value in his money and his stuff than he does for Christ and the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that we have said last week in verse 22, we see it, he says, disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now last week I tried to make sure at the end of the service that we understood that even though right here in this particular situation with this man, it's money and his love of possessions that cause him to no longer follow after Christ. But what I wanted to make sure that we understood is it can be anything, guys. Church, it could be anything that, that causes us. It can be a relationship. It could be a desire for power, for prestige. It can be family. It could be our children. It could be our love for other people that calls us to pursue other things or other people. It doesn't just have to be money and wealth. But with that said, there is something uniquely dangerous about wealth. There's something uniquely dangerous about money. And that's Jesus' point here. It's what he's going to be teaching them. Notice, if you will, there's two things I want to show you first off. And this is going to bleed into next week's message. But let me show you just two things very quickly. First of all, we are rich. Did you know that? We are rich. Notice verse 23. He says, And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And then he goes on, he basically says it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. He's emphasizing the fact that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to draw your attention. Look at it, it says Jesus looked around. He says when he looked around, what he's in essence doing is his attention, his full attention, is moving from this one man, this rich young ruler, and now all of his same attention, all the same context of what he's telling him is now turned and he's looking to his disciples. And, And what he's about to say not only applies to his immediate 12 disciples, but what he's going to say is going to apply to all disciples for all time. So if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is warning you about here applies to you and to me, just like it did for the first 12. And so he's drawing his attention there, and he says, listen, disciples, both my 12 and you, you are in the same danger as this rich man of falling away from me because of your riches, okay? Now, I know that I have to take a time out there because I know you because I know me, all right? The beginning of the week, I thought, oh, great, another sermon that doesn't apply to me. And I know that's how some of you think. Some of you sit there and go, man, every week, Brother Mike, it's just the word just banging me in the head, and I have to repent and I have to get right. That's why we're here. Yes, we're here to rejoice, but to get right, to be transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, finally, a message I can breathe. Because I am not a rich man, and I'm not a rich woman. I'm neither of those, all right? Uh, some, some of you might be thinking, I'm not a man nor rich. And I know that's the way for us to naturally think. Here's why. We think that way because in our minds, we have a picture of who rich people look like, right? And, and for me, it's people that drive Bentleys. Right, sorry if you have a Bentley, but that's just my picture of rich people. Get your own picture, that's my picture, right? It's people that drive around and stroll around in their yachts, right? And the people that go on, they have a vacation home in the Hamptons, and I don't mean Northampton. I mean Hamptons, you know, up north, a little further north, right? And this is the picture of what I have. All of us have these pictures of what is rich. We never look at ourselves, isn't that true, and sit there and go, yeah, rich, it's always somebody else with more stuff with other stuff. But what I want you to understand this morning is we gather this and we understand this because most of us were born, live, and continue to grow up in the United States of America. If you were on the mission field, thank God my dad had me on the mission field for many times. Because here's what you have to, have to, you have to understand. 95% of the rest of the world, when they think of rich people, they think of you. And they think of me. They believe that you are filthy rich, and compared to 95%, no matter where you are in the scale of the United States, you and I are filthy rich. We must understand that, embrace that. Look, some of you woke up this morning, praise God, right? You woke up, great, and you woke up in a home. You woke up in a home. Some of you own your homes. Some of you are owned by the bank that owns your home, right? Some of you are renting a home, right? You've got all, some are let, letting you stay in a home, but let me tell you something. If you woke up this morning in a home that was protect, protecting you from the weather, protecting you from the heat, protecting you from the elements that are outside, and if you woke up this morning in a home that doesn't have a dirt floor, and no, a dirty floor does not count for a dirt floor, but if you woke up with an actual floor beneath your feet, you are richer than the majority of people in this world. We talk about, and we complain quite a bit, and I do, about health care and the price of health care, and who knows how this whole thing is going to end. I'm sure the government's right on it, and it's going to fix it all. Very confident of that, right? I'm not an anti-government guy either, you know? My, my prepping friends and things, like I'm not that, and I know some of you are not. I'll just keep moving on. I don't want people to get angry. Uh, so, so, But the idea is that I, I don't hate them. I, you know, good, God's given it to us. We submit ourselves to the government, but I just don't have any faith in them. All right? i got faith. In Jesus Christ, how all this is going to work out. But here's the truth of the matter is, because we live in a country that we have the amazing access to the best health care in the world, no matter how much it costs, you and I are extremely wealthy. If you were to pass out today, and we've had that happen, not by the move of the Spirit and people being slain in the Spirit, but rather people because of low blood sugar and other things and people getting angry with me, they've passed out. Right then, I could call an ambulance, and in instance, you would have people come to you to administer health care. You wouldn't have to walk three hours or five hours to be able to go and to be able to get some aspirin. It is everywhere. You and I are filthy rich. I stop and think about something that's just so basic, water. And I think about how the countries that I've been in, and maybe some of you have been in the same thing, that all day, one of the key goals that they have each day is finding enough water to survive for the day for the family. Sometimes one of the mom's jobs, major jobs, and she'll take up to six hours a day to be able to do it, is to secure drinkable water for their family to have enough to be able to drink. I think of our time that we've spent. We're a very missional church, if you don't know that here, our time in Ethiopia working with the Oromo people. And I think about meeting with them in the clinics that we were there. And for the majority of those in the Oromo people, their problems really were stemmed from not having enough water. But the problem is when you encourage them to drink water, they drink the water. Then they have a whole other series of problems because of the ailments that they get from drinking the water, the different types of dysenteries and amoebas that they drink into their system. But yet you and I, what do we do? If we want water, what do we do? Just go to the sink, grab a cup, stick it underneath the faucet, and turn it on. Or if we're really if we're really, uh, really, lush and really rich like I am, you've got this beautiful refrigerator And you just go to the refrigerator and you take that cup and you put it right in the refrigerator and out comes purified cold water in the refrigerator. Truth of the matter is I just lied. I don't take it out of the refrigerator because I don't like the taste of it. So I'm even more rich because I buy bottled water for myself. I don't let the kids drink it. It's just for me. Because I'm the king of the home, and it's expensive. But if you want bottled water, look, you've got it all in your house. And and literally, you and I will sometimes go and get the bottled stuff, which is the same stuff just through another filter. And they plaster, you know, fresh water or spring water on it. And we're all happy, and we're all full. And we're willing to spend a dollar a bottle or whatever it is to be able to get this water. But really, the ultimate demonstration of our wealth is not the fact that we have such great access to water to drink. Really, our wealth is demonstrated with what we do with this life-giving water. It's not only that we drink it. We use literally hundreds and thousands of gallons to keep grass alive. To wash cars. To pressure wash sidewalks. This is what people are spending six to eight hours a day trying to secure for themselves around the world. And the greatest demonstration of of our wealth is the fact that we use it for recreation that we will fill up a hole in the ground. Sorry, Brian, if he's here. Brian, pool guy, he builds pools. I hope this helps you and doesn't hinder you. But we have so much, we fill it up with water, and we have no intention of drinking that water whatsoever, but we will sit there in our inflatable sit-back, and we will bask in it. We will go to water parks, where literally hundreds of thousands and perhaps even millions of gallons of water are spent nothing to be able to get our big rear ends down the slide, that's it, into a big pool. We're incredibly rich. It's not only about water, but it's also about food. Guys, there's food everywhere. Some of the biggest decisions that you guys have for the day, you'll spend more time not at the end of this service based on what you should do based on the word of God. Some of you, some of you'll spend more time trying to think about where you're going to eat afterwards. And where it demonstrates our uh, our. our, our is the fact that we actually have the privilege to sit there and go, no, I don't really feel like eating there or feel like eating that. When the rest of the world is just going, am I going to eat? Do I have the opportunity to eat today? And then we sit there and listen, go into the grocery store. It's, it's mind boggling. If you just stop and think about what it is that you're experiencing, looking at, it will blow your mind. This whole place is filled with food, every kind of food, canned food, boxed food, frozen food, fresh food. They've got it to go. If you don't even want to cook it, the food is there. Go to the deli. Go and eat some It's food everywhere. People get together, Where to just bring food. We're around Christmas, we're so sick of food, it's coming out of our ears. What do we do? Let's get together and eat again. Why? Are you hungry? No, but just bring more food. And the truth of the matter is, is we have so much food that we have actually created a whole category of sicknesses here in America that the rest of the world knows nothing about majority of the world knows nothing about obesity, knows nothing, very little about high blood pressure, knows very little about high cholesterol, heart disease, and very little about certain types of diabetes, which is caused by us overindulging in our riches and wealth. And not only that, but many of us spend more money trying to work off the effects of indulging, overindulging ourselves through gyms and through, through diets and through everything else. We complain, why am I so fat? I'm so fat because I eat so much. That's, that's, that's my problem. I'm not speaking about you. I indulge too much. I know some people have different problems. I'm I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to say that we are incredibly wealthy. Beyond imagination, wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Second thing I want you to see is this. Our riches present a spiritual danger to all of us. All of that wealth, all those possessions, all those things Money itself really does cause and present a spiritual danger to all of us. Now, that's hard for me to understand, isn't it? Because when I think of money, I think good thing, not bad thing a matter of fact, for some of us in our day, what we would ultimately think is we'd think this. We would think, if I could just have a little bit more money, then a lot of my suffering and difficulties would merely go away. It's just based on money. Don't say that you've never thought that way because you do. If I could just have a little bit more, then things would be made better. You don't think, if I could have a little bit more, my life would be more challenged and I would be in more danger. I would ask you this morning, How many of you wish to be rich or wish to be poor, I'm sure, at least for those who are awake and listening to what I'm saying, would say that we'll take rich all day long over poverty. Why? Because it's so easy to see the good in riches, but it's so hard to see what is bad. It's so hard to see what is flawed there or what is dangerous about money. Now, uh, here's what I want you to be able to understand this morning is this. Now, if the idea of being wealthy really presents spiritual dangers to you, if that shocks you and that's kind of surprising to you, you're in good company because it shocked Jesus' disciples to whom he just said that to The Bible says when Jesus says that it is hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says that the disciples were amazed which means they responded in the same exact way we saw last week with the rich one, young ruler. When Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to me, that man responded, the, This disciples are responding in the same way they did. The word literally means that, that what Jesus was saying was radical, it was shocking, it was appalling, and it was even offensive that Jesus would say that rich people have a hard time entering into the kingdom of God. Now the question is, Why? And the reason for that is because how they viewed riches in the Old Testament. Now, what I want to do is this. Next week is where I'm going to really unpack why money itself and the ways that it is dangerous to us spiritually. We're going to unpack that in the rest of the text. This morning, I just really want to answer the one question. Why are the disciples shocked? Why are they shocked by what Jesus has just said, that it's hard for a rich man, rich people, all of you. Listen, it's hard for you to be saved. It's hard for you to inherit inherit the kingdom of God. Are you with me? That's what Jesus is saying. Let's answer that. Number one, in the Old Testament, obedience to God was evidenced by the acquiring of material blessings. Now, this is the perspective of the disciples. The reason they're shocked is because in the Old Testament, obedience to God was evidenced by the acquiring of material blessings. Simply put, you obey God, God's going to give you stuff. He's going to give you money. He's going to give you riches. And this is clear in the word of God, especially the examples of great men of God. Now, I'm going to whip through these passages. You write these down. You go back and read these. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through 3 says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what he says. Hey, you do what I say. You leave your land. You leave your securities. You leave your family and all that you know. You go where I tell you to go. And he says, and I will bless you for it exceedingly. Now what kind of blessings is he speaking about? Of course they're spiritual blessings. The spiritual blessings will come for God. But what, are, what else are they? They are material blessings that he is going to give him, all right? And so we find this later in Genesis chapter 24, 35, when Moses is at the end of his life. The Bible says, when Abraham, excuse me, Abraham, when Abraham was old, his servant said to Abraham, here's his servant speaking. He says, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and made servants and female servants and and, and, and camels and donkeys. Here's the idea. God promised, if you do what is right and you are righteous, I will bless you financially. That was a part of the agreement. Now, it didn't stop with Abraham. It continued on with his son, Isaac. Now, let me just say something, because some of you don't know me. Some of you are new. We are not a health, wealth, prosperity gospel message. You're going to find that out. You just need to stick with this, okay? And so in the, so, what we find is it's not only Abraham, but it's also Isaac. Genesis chapter 26, verses 2 through 3, here's what it says about Isaac. He says, do not, God's speaking to Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and, and, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. See, there's a promise of blessing. Do what I say, I will bless you. You follow up in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land. In other words, he stayed in that land. And so what happens? And he reaped the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich. And he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied his enemies, envied him because of his great wealth that God had given him because of his obedience. Now we could continue on. Uh, Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, same thing happens with him. It happens again with his son, Jacob's son, one of his sons, Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph has a really cool members-only jacket. Do you remember that? Some of you don't know what members-only jackets are. Some of you do. Everybody coveted it way back when. Everybody wanted it. His brothers wanted it. They took it. They threw him. They sold him into slavery. What happens to Joseph? He is faithful to God. He works up into the house of Potiphar. Until he's what? He's falsely accused of of coming on to his wife. And what does he He do? He's thrown into prison. And at this time in prison, he remains to be faithful to God. God exalts him all the way up to the second most powerful figure in all of Egypt. And he amasses great wealth and fortune. And God uses that fortune to save his brothers and his people who are suffering from uh, from, uh, lack of food and lack of water because of the famine. And so what we find is this continues on with other great men of God. David was blessed immensely with riches. Solomon was demonstrated beyond imagination with his riches. All stemmed to being obedient to God. Not that they were perfect, but stemmed to obedience to God. Job was one of them. Remember the story of Job? God comes to Satan and he basically says, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? There are none righteous like him. There are none righteous like him. And what, what, what else did he have? He had tons of riches. He was incredibly wealthy. And so God begins to work in him, begins to test him. He loses everything. But when he remains faithful in the end, what does God do? He restores his riches a hundredfold. He was filthy, filthy rich. And this continues to go. So understand the, gospel, the, the disciples' perspective. When they look back, all of the patriarchs and all of the great men of God who have come and all the great kings, they were immensely rich because of their obedience. God had said, "You're rich, uh, you, you'll be rich, and it will be evidence of my obe- your obedience to me. I'll give you great wealth." But it's not only the picture of what happened, it was also clearly taught in the scriptures itself. In Psalm 128, verse 1 and 2, he said, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And you shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Do what? Be obedient, I'm going to bless you financially. Isaiah 3.10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Do right, I'm going to bless you with material stuff. Now here's the question, is is that clear? very clear in the text of scripture. Just at least joke with, if you want to get out, nod your head, all right? Okay, so here's the deal. So where do we go from there? Now, why did God work this way in the Old Testament? Why did he have to do that? Why did he choose to give them great wealth? Well, remember what God is doing at this time. God has set apart from him in redemptive history. He set apart a people, a peculiar people for him. And he put them in where? The promise of their affluence would be in a land, a people in a land. And in that land, there would be a what? A temple. And in the midst of that temple, there would be a what? A God. And so what God was showing all the other nations is what God's ultimate plan was, is that the nations would come to him and be underneath his submission. wouldn't have an earthly king, but would have a great God. God would be their king. He would dwell amongst their people, and he would rule supremely. And so what they would do is they built this temple. And what kind of temple was this? A lavish, rich, glorious temple laden in gold. I mean, this thing was the most beautiful temple you could ever imagine. And in the midst of it was their God. Here was the idea. By building this temple, people would come from all over the world, see the glory of the building. And the the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, were then to introduce them to the glory of their God. You guys got that? Now, in order to build that building, what do they have to have? Lots of money. Lots of money to build it. Lots of money to be able to keep it up. Lots of money to do all this stuff. Let's build it. The people will come. And so this is the picture of the Old Testament and what's ultimately happening there. Now, there's a shift. There's a huge shift, in fact, later on. Down the line. So from the disciples' perspective, stop and think. This rich man, stop and think about it. This rich man in their eyes is a righteous man. Why? Because he's been given those riches by whom? God. He's also a ruler in the synagogue. He's a religious leader. This man is also able to give much money even to the temple so that great things can happen there to be able to draw more people to the glorious temple so that they'll ultimately meet the glorious God. But now, there's a shift, and the disciples aren't aware of the shift. Radical shift from Old Testament to New Testament. Have you noticed in the Old Testament and the New Testament that there's never a promise of great material wealth based on your obedience? Health, wealth, prosperity, people, everything they base their riches off of and their promise of riches comes from where? The Old Testament. Not from the New Testament. There's no promise. Instead, we see kind of a completely different picture. What do we see? We see Jesus saying, give up all you have, sell all you have, and follow the poor. What else do we see? We see in Hebrews, in the faith chapter, we see them sitting there going, not that you're going to become rich, but some are being sown salt in two. Some are being boiled in oil. Some are being ripped apart by animals and thrown to the beasts. Something has radically shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And notice this what is it what What happens? Well, one of the radical shifts is in the temple where we worship in the Old Testament. there was a temple, in the New Testament, there are hundreds of thousands of millions, if not billions, of temples. The temple of God is no longer in a building. The temple of God is now dwelling within every single believer. This is what Paul says. Paul begins to speak very clearly to the people in Acts chapter 17 in verse 24. He's speaking there, and, he, and there he is in a temple, in a pagan temple, and people are worshiping all these gods and giving, uh, giving uh, um, uh, money and giving all their stuff to these gods in the splendid temple. And he comes in the midst of them in Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 verse 24, and he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. Well, then Paul, where does he live? 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's the radical shift. The Old Testament was demonstrating that obedience was demonstrated by God giving you wealth, by acquiring riches. The big shift now is what? Is that obedience to God is evidenced by the abandoning of riches here on earth. That's the difference between the old and the new. It's not acquiring. It's not the acquiring and the storing up and the keeping to oneself It's rather what? It's the abandoning of the storing up of those riches. That's the difference between the two. Why? Because the temple has shifted. It has gone from everybody come to this one glorious building so that you can experience the glory of God to what God says now. He says, go. Not come, but go. Now, instead of one temple that the whole world has to come to, now the temples are going to go to all people. And what are they going to use with the wealth? You've already admitted. Wealth. What do we do? Do we store it up to build more stuff? No, the Bible says you use it to go. You use it so that you can go and I can go and we can send others so that temples will litter the whole world in a good way so that people will see the glory of God. Do you see that? That's the key. And we're going to sit back, and I can tell that this is doing much for all of you. You look so enthralled. And the reason you're so enthralled is because this is rubbing you raw just like it rubs me raw. I have to preach it, and I am guilty of it. You just have to listen and go about your way, some of you, and never act like you ever heard a thing, right? Because we're going to be thinking about where we want to eat. And maybe you're doing that already. But how does this apply to us? And maybe you're visiting and you're looking for churches. This certainly applies to our own church. We were told time and time again when well, we were going to build this building, we were told time and time again, you're underbuilding, you're underbuilding, you're underbuilding, you need to build big, bigger, bigger, bigger. But for those that were making those decisions, we just sat there and said, man, we cannot become building poor. How are we going to do the mission of God? How are we going to send people around the world if we become house poor and we can't do that? Yes, do we need a building? Yes, we we need a building. And even now, I'm trying to figure out this whole thing. I know by looking at the numbers now, it doesn't look real radical, but when everybody's off vacation, this place fills up quickly, both services. And there is a part of me as a pastor, I'm just telling you straightforward, I just think there's something about the whole body coming together and worshiping together. There's something beautiful about it. There's something, especially taking the Lord's Supper, like we're going to in just a few minutes. There's something wonderful about it. How do we work that out? But at the same time, how do we work that out to, so that we're not spending all our money in this kind of idea of like if we build it, they will come? Now, you stop and think about it. For some of you that have been a part of churches, even this church and other churches, what do we always say? Let's build for the glory of God. Do we not? If you're with me, would you just blink, do something. I don't nod off to sleep, do something so I know you're with us. Build to the glory of God. Do you know why we're still there? It's because we're still working in the old covenant and not the new covenant. The old covenant is build something extravagant so that people will see how glorious God is. The new testament is I do not dwell in temples made by hand. But now in flesh, in every believer, now take your wealth and go. Take your wealth and go. There's something there that we have to work out spiritually for our church as a faith community. But there's something there we have to work out as a church individually amongst ourselves with God as well. Because how many of you have said something like this? I'm guilty of it. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Get that house. You know, you go from one house to the next house to the better house. And you finally got that great house. And you sit there and you've even opened it up. Hey, I'm going to use it for the glory of God. I'm going to open it up and use it for the glory. God, if you will bless me and allow me to use my wealth to build this big thing, I will use it for your glory. And then there you are. You're walking through the house and people are like, wow, this place is gorgeous. And you sit there and go, thank God. God is good. God is good. You are saying, God gave me all this because of my obedience to God. He gave me all of this. And so with the money that he's given me, I've acquired. Now what I've done is I've built stuff for the glory of God. i built, you see how glorious he is? You see how wonderful he is? Look, look, look Look at my house. Look at our church building. I don't even know what to do with that. Because the truth of the matter is, we are in the New Testament where he sits there and he says, in Matthew, you cannot serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and what? Money. Can't do it. This is more of an abandoning of those things and propagating the gospel of Christ to show his glorious ways amongst the nations than it is for you and I to keep building up and acquiring more wealth and bigger things and greater things and say it's for the glory of God when God's like, man, that's old covenant. We're in a new covenant. It's not about building this place right here. You know, I know that some of you are struggling already because what you're thinking in your mind is, Brother Mike is asking for more money. I'm not asking for more money. This is the text before us. This is what we're preaching, the text of scripture. God's blessing us. We're, we're doing fine. That's not it. But if you were to, just to assure you, if you were to come up today and say, hey, listen, I've got good news and I have bad news for you. We have a million bucks. We got a million bucks and I'm gonna give it to God. That's the good news. The bad news is, brother Mike, that we're not gonna give it to this church. We're gonna give it to our work in these other areas and these other regions of the world where it's working. And I would sit there and I would tell you with as much conviction and love towards you and sincerity as I can, there is no bad news in that Thank God you are faithful to do what God has called you to do. Thank you for being a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ. Thank you. That's where it belongs. And so there has to come a time where in practical application, we have to start working this stuff out. And we're to talk about riches and what it does to us and how it just makes us lose our ever-loving mind of how it makes us to sit back and we want to protect everything that we have. And we stretch out whenever the market goes somewhere. And the more that you have, you begin to worry all the more. And how it begins to fight against the affections for us, for God, because of our self. We're going to unpack all that next week. But can we just admit to right now that we need to begin living in the new covenant and not the old? God is glorifying by us going to the nations and giving. Now, does that mean that we don't have a house? No. Work it out. Work it out. I'm trying to work it out. You have to work this stuff out. You can't just say, hey, we went to church. you got to work this out. Well, does that mean we can build this? Work it out. It's hard. But I do know this. I do know that if for nothing else, that God, by his mercy and grace, saved me through his completed work. And he drew me and he called me and he elected me. And I'm saved by grace or faith of no work of my own, but only because of the gracious calling and drawing of God. I do know that I've got to ask my question, God, am I living as you'd call me to live? Am I living in the old or the new covenant that now you say to go and descend? Or am I, dear Jesus, still sitting there and acquiring and acquiring and acquiring and trying to convince myself and everybody else, look how good God is because of the stuff he's given me. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We love you. We thank you. And God, as we approach the Lord's Supper right now, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move in our hearts and our lives. God, this is just crazy talk. This is so completely different from so much of what we hear, so so much of what we've promoted, so much of what we live. God, if it be true, let us repent and seek you and work this truth out in our lives. God, we love you. All those who are new out not saved, will you call them and draw them? Will they be saved today?